Black Cats Run Podcast. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll, and this is Black Cats Run. On today's episode, part two of Who's On First, we will discuss the concept of how and why queuing is such a significant part of training and performance, how it not only improves the quality of our experience, but it also improves the performance that we develop. It turns out that we don't have to choose between being miserable but getting fast having fun, but being slow. It all depends on how you think about what you do. Let's get into today's episode. Trying to understand why it's so important to pay attention to, analyze, assess, and develop our ability to understand how we feel when we're training, I think is something that can be very um, frustrating uh, for athletes to try to, I guess, like engage with as a critical perspective. And I think one of the reasons is because we have such confidence and certainty that our structures and processes are really what drive what we're doing and that whatever feelings that we basically experience, whatever adversities um, that are engendered by the, the process of our training from session to session and then you know across the you know more aggregate scale of you know how are we experiencing our sense of identity and, and sense of existing really I mean not to sound melodramatic but um, you know, it's something that consumes a lot of energy and consumes a lot of thought and, you know, it exists as a part of what we do even when we're not literally actively doing that. That's why it's such a big part of our identity for many people. But when we just look at this stuff with the perspective of it's challenging and the challenge is to not allow the challenge to somehow limit us or, or take away from what it is exactly we're trying to do. And that is essentially framing what we're doing as a concept of how I feel is irrelevant to how I train. And if anything, paying attention to how I feel is going to limit my ability to do well. And it's sort of this, you know, posturing of like, um, you know, people don't talk about the, the pain of, of suffering, right? And there's this no pain, no gain mentality and you know, the, the counterpoint to that, train, don't strain, which I think, you know, it's fair to attribute that to Arthur Lydiard has something that sometimes people also say that. But, you know, I think a lot of people think that, you know, their 
achieving that when the reality is they really are straining um, and being uncomfortable. And, and I think that's the weird thing, right? It's not even just being comfortably being comfortable being uncomfortable, but I think people don't appreciate that the level of trashedness, coin a phrase, trashed, the level of trashedness that people experience from day to day um, in training is just sort of absurd. And we've talked on the podcast before about how then we build up constructed understandings of what things like quote unquote recovery mean and that recovery is there to balance that stuff out. And of course we feel bad because recovery exists. And so then the, the concept of recovery just sort of further perpetuates the notion that, you know, we suffer and then, and then either we recover well or we don't. And, um, you know, the reality is when you compare apples to apples, you know, you're going to have variants, you know, but you're never going to have so much variance that one of those apples is going to be an orange. And I think that's very significant because when we look at these training experiences, it we're really comparing apples to apples. And this process is like you, you follow these steps, you do these st- systems, right? It's, you know, validated maybe through a model of periodization, which is, you know, what we were talking about um, in the last episode. And the demand of training, the frequency plus the volume plus the intensity, the, man- the demand of training is just, something that we, we tolerate. And, um, you know, we, we talked about in the last episode how, uh, there's two big things that come out of the questions we ask about what our training should look like. Um, when we get to the, you know, component that is, I think the most essential and also the most irrelevant once you've solved it, you know, how hard. And we said that number one, we scale up training to the intensity of the hard or impossible. And therefore that defines our general idea of what's the maximum level at which training is beneficial. The maximum level at which training is possible is the point of failure right then. So, you know, and then if you go on that scale of what is acceptable in training, then you can train at any level up to the point of physical failure. And then number two, we then take hard and struggle to be, desirable. But the reality is when things are hard, when you're struggling, um, you're not performing, you're failing. Um, But if we think of failure specifically just in this narrow physiological parameter of I literally can't do it anymore, you know, that shifts that notion. I think that's one of the limiters to these kinds of physiological, you know, frameworks and models that we see with you know, periodization. And we talked about some different concepts of periodization in the last episode. But we also started that episode by talking about uh, this hypothesis about our ability to identify intensity. And in this episode today, we're going to talk more about how we engage in this problem of identifying intensity and, you know, propose some you know, differentiation around the kinds of cueing that goes on. And maybe from that, we can reach some conclusions about what we should do with cueing. And I think it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that things that are abstract, you know, are challenging ideas or different perspectives to training than maybe we assume we should have, right? A lot of training is about conformity, do do as you're told, and and the more... um, disciplined you are, the more you'll be rewarded with the desired outcome. 
Uh, most of us aren't rewarded by that. And rather than assume that there's something wrong with that structure, uh, we're just sort of told that we're not sufficiently disciplined. And, you know, I think the evidence says that that's not true, right? And again, when we compare apples to apples, you know, some of the apples are going to be um, sweeter than others, right? You know, that variance is inevitable, but that doesn't mean that just because some apples are sweeter, that that means this is the only thing that exists. And there are totally different ways to approach training than we wait the way that we do it. And, uh, you know, like a lot of ideas in our culture and our societies, um, cultures and societies around the world, not just in the West, but you know, these things are not the culmination. I think it's a weird bias of existence that we all kind of feel naturally we must exist at the most developed point of, you know, human humanity's trajectory. And maybe thus far, maybe we are, you could make an argument for that, certainly from a technology perspective, but, you know, it's also the case that sport is so new to society and you, so many other sorts of facets of culture and society that have, you know, persisted either as um, in social forms or, you know, in, in sort of more like tangible actions, like you could think about, you know, medicine, you could think about, you know, warfare, um, you know, these are things that have changed dramatically and, you know, continue to change. But I think there's this sense in athletics that like, well, it's just sort of like training to get better and it's not that complicated. And I think, first of all, whenever people look at something and say it's not that complicated, um, that's really code for there's nothing else that I need to understand. Don't make me feel like I need to challenge or question or second guess or reevaluate the way that I think, right? It's not, you know, don't make it complicated. It's don't, don't rock my boat. Um, but why should we assume that, you know, we've basically figured this out and that this concept of, yeah, you just train as hard as you can. You know, I think we're still largely you in the, in, in the alchemy era of athletics, you know, for thousands of years, you know, the paradigm of physical sciences, if you will, uh, the science of substances was this alchemical stuff um, where, you know, people were, I mean, writing things in, in code, you know, and I think that idea of inaccessibility is prevalent in athletics too. Even if things aren't written in code, I think it's sometimes so difficult to decipher or comprehend what people mean. And part of that is because the things that they're saying don't actually mean anything. The things that they're saying are actually kind of a bunch of bullshit. And when you look at it from that perspective, like you can't make things that don't make sense make sense because they don't make sense. <laughs> like you can't, you know, at the end of the day, a circle's not square, you know, and it doesn't matter how much somebody tries to tell you it's square, you're never going to look at it and you're never going to see a square. And if, and if you do look at it and, they, and, you, and you convince yourself that it's a square, you're just deluding yourself. You know, so evaluating, you know, this process um, of this stuff, I think that it's very likely that we are really in the early phases of understanding. And I think, you know, we have not reached that shift like we saw, you know, from alchemy into chemistry. And I think that, you know, the way that shift occurred um, was people trying to go beyond just sort of this superficial logical thinking of like, well, 
you know, if I see it and it makes sense to me, then that's good enough. That's all I need to know. Um, and instead, you know, it was people asking questions and it was people saying things that, you know, did go against the grain. And, it, you know, just because you have an idea that's different and, you know, in fairness, you could point this finger at, you know, some of the ideas in this podcast and, and I'm OK with that and I'll explain why. Um, just because you have an idea that's different doesn't necessarily mean that y- you have anything, you know, doesn't mean you're a genius, doesn't mean you have something unique or innovative. But I also think that unless we're asking questions, um, then we we can't figure stuff out. And I continue, honestly, genuinely to be amazed at how much my understanding and my paradigm and knowledge about training begins to expand. And I've shared the development of that thinking just across the scale of you know, this podcast and the uh, nine months that we've been uh, hosting this now. And, you know, that's nine months out of, you know, you know, almost 25 years of athletic experience for, on my part. And, you know, so when you look at it at that scale, right across that time scale, 25 years in, I still feel um, genuinely that I'm learning new things and that these are things that are I think things worth learning because they have a meaningful impact. And to that point, in the last episode, we talked about, right, again, again, the idea of like our ability to identify intensity. And I talked about some examples of doing um, lactate threshold tests with some different people in running where I would have them do 10 minute steps. And it was as much a physical uh, fitness um, metabolic evaluation as it was really a sort of psychological uh, experiment. And, um, you know, and I told that people this before. I said, you know, run threshold, let's see where it is. I think we don't have a good sense of it. And, you know, since then, uh, I also did this with my brother Camden, um, you know, for his running intensity. And uh, he had gone through a five-minute pace focus um, over the summer leading up to the Beach to Beacon 10K, um, you know, which left him feeling pretty flat. And so I had said that, you know, I think you got to reevaluate kind of where you are and you want to know what your threshold is. And so I finally got him to come down and go to the track. And, um, you know, he ran the 10 minutes that he thought was threshold. And he was like, I think maybe 3.2 um, or 3.4 millimoles. And for him, his, you know, baseline state, right? And remember that you know, accumulating lactate means that you've crossed over into glycolysis and then you're, you've now exceeded the ability of the mitochondria to take advantage of the lactate as energy. So your efficiency declines, you're using those type 2 muscle fibers, and that leads to fatigue both in the context of the training session, leads to fatigue after the context of the training session, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we really don't want to do that. And so for him, that was 520 pace. And, you know, he was talking to me as he was going around, you know, lap for lap because there is this effect where, you know, it doesn't really feel that hard. And I showed him the number and I said, well, this is, you know, too much. And I said, well, do you want to try another one? He said, okay. And, you know, he went out and he ran and ended up running about like 555 pace. And then he tested and it was like 1.2. And I was like, okay, that's, you know, more or less where, where we want to be, right? You know, close to one 
um, maybe under one, but maybe you can be maybe a cup one or two chance over, and he's one point two. So I said that's where we where we want to be at, and um, then you know another example right of somebody whom you know this is a sixty nine minute uh, half marathoner, a really good cyclist. Um, you know, and his sense of what that is, I think, was more moderate and more conservative than mine, because mine was five point eight millimoles <laughs> of what I thought that my threshold should be, and you know, to see that occurring, you know, again, it's somebody who's fit at a very high level of fitness, you know, I think further reinforces that concept. And today, I did a lactate test, two lactate tests. I did a lactate test for myself for running. And then I did a lactate test with Caleb McVeigh. And we've been, you know, working on his training for triathlon, um, going back to kind of, I think, probably like late mid to late January of this year. And uh, this is the first time we've gotten around to doing a lactate test for his running to see what that looks like. So I wanted to go out and in the morning and before that and, and do mine instead of trying to do them both at the same time, you know, because it's too much finger pricking and, you know, you want to get the lactate reading quickly after you after you finish each rep and so that you're not dubbing around and then the lactate is starting to sort of taper off and, and, and clear out and, or get sort of eaten down really doesn't get, I don't like the word cleared because it's energy and energy is utilized. Cleared suggests you throw it out. Um, and that's not what the body is doing. If it was throwing out, it wouldn't just be sitting around in the bloodstream. It would go somewhere. And so I, anyway, I did mine and, you know, compared to the first time I did this test, my sense of threshold has improved dramatically. So through practice, and this is, you know, really, you know, maybe 10 weeks, maybe nine weeks, it hasn't really been a huge amount of time. And my sense of, you know, where this is, is totally different. So, you know, in the first test that I did, um, I went from uh, 0.7 to 1.7 to 5.4. And um, pretty quickly. <laughs> and that was it, right? There was no real in between. I, I did my jogging effort. I did my higher intensity effort. And then I did my, um, I'm sorry, I'm skipping that step. I did my jogging effort, I did my regular running effort. And then I did the higher intensity of what I thought threshold was. And I just skipped right out of sub-threshold to way over threshold um, at 5.8 or 5.4 millimoles. Today's test, um, I started at uh, a little bit more relaxed. I started at 296 watts. And again, these are like 10-minute steps. And the first step, I was 0.5. And then I did 316 for 10 minutes. I was 0.8. And then I did 334 for 10 minutes. I was 0.6, and then at 350, I was 1. So essentially, um, I was able to decrease my lactate at 350 watts over the last 9 to 10 weeks. You know, really should probably not say 10 weeks because I had, uh, after gravel race I did in Rangeley, Maine, my hamstring was kind of sore, so I had kind of like a, a week where I, 
didn't really do anything because I just wanted to wait for that to go away and not mess around with it. But I noticed doing the test now at the beginning of the week, my you know running felt pretty funky after taking you know a bunch of rest days. But after a couple of sessions, I went back to feeling the way that I've been feeling, which is you know really comfortable, really strong, really feeling like I can actually run properly, and I'm not out there just sort of shuffling along or fighting through you know huge muscle fatigue all the time. And I could my efforts were much sort of more nuanced. Um, you know, because I was able to sort of move through these steps where I wasn't just jumping from comfortably sub-threshold to way over threshold. So my sensibility of what the intensity is has changed. And at 350 watts, I was at one millimole. So, you know, that is a huge uh, distinction. And I could feel that difference. You know, it, I mean, the exertional experience of that is is very um significantly changed. And then I actually stopped at uh, 378 watts when I was at um, like 2.7 millimoles because I was able to say, well, like, what's the point? You know, I, I don't, doesn't, I'm over threshold. I don't need to keep going. I don't want to be at that intensity. And so just in that time scale from July 8th to September 23rd, and I think that this adjustment, you know, didn't just suddenly materialize, but it's been happening all along. I've totally been able to change the way that I think about this stuff and in terms of as I'm running. And I, and I say this as somebody for whom, you know, I used to think I know how to run. I've been doing this for, since I was a middle school student, you know, I don't really need to take the lactate, lactate meter out and test up and see what am I doing in my running. I just don't need that. I know, I know what I'm doing. And I quickly learned that I, I didn't know what I was doing and it explained a ton of things um, made sense to me in a way that they hadn't before. But it was also pretty discouraging, I, not even because I really cared that uh, it showed that I wasn't really fast. I mean, I've, I've sort of known where that's been for a while and had been, you know, generally been sort of like past the point of frustration and just sort of shrugged my shoulders and been like, whatever, you know, it'll either get better at some point or it won't. Uh, there's nothing else I can really do about it. Um, and of course, now I've proven myself to be that that mindset was like a pretty uh, fixed and defeatist mindset. I mean, not that my mindset wasn't the problem. I just didn't have a different perspective on what I could do. And, you know, when I recognized that this is my concept of threshold, I was like, I, I don't know what this needs to feel like. You know, I, I won't be able to detect the intensity, but I had the stride pod. I still have the stride pod. And so I was setting my watts based on my test and, what I've discovered is as I've gone along and, you know, I, I kind of expected this to happen, to be honest, but as I've gone along, I've improved my feel and I've now still run the watch and have the workout set up with the watch, but more and more, I'm not even looking at it. Um, I'm, I'm really able to feel it. So I'm responding to a different sense of that. And then as I was doing the test today, um, you know, I got to, whatever that was, the step before uh, 2.7, I got to like um, 1.8 millimole. And I could tell, you know, that, okay, yeah, I'm basically kind of in that transition over it. You know, I think there's some sort of wiggle room where you can sort of be making that metabolic shift, but it's so slight that you're not really feeling that level of strain yet. But I was like, you know, if I do anything else, it's just going to go up. And I was sort of reluctant to do another one because, 
you know, my sense of where I was relative to exertion was so different. Um, and I, I ended up doing one uh, and I said, well, I'll do like a, I can do a lap or two. And then if I don't like how it feels, I can just stop. But I ended up doing that last step at 378 and, you know, at, at 2.7 millimole and that, you know, you, I could tell, right. I was, I was actually pleasantly surprised that it wasn't a little bit more, but you know, it, it made sense that it was going to be, you know, higher. And that's that jump of, you know, about one uh, millimole. Those, as those jumps start to happen, that's how, you know, you're, you're past that point of efficiency. But if I had tried to do 378 Watts at the beginning of July, yeah, that would have probably been maybe like eight millimole, you know? And so you recognize that, okay, changing the way that I'm thinking about my intensity is really improving what I'm able to do. And it reflects how quickly we can change our cues. And then it also reflects, and I think this is what should be most um, immediately compelling to people who are looking for you know, answers to the question of, you know, how do I get in better shape? How do I get faster? You know, what is it here on Black Hat's run that is going to allow me to sort of change something substantive and significant immediately about my approach? Um, but that's a 50 watch, watch shift, you know, and, and going from being at 5.8 to 1.0 millimoles is a huge difference. And, you know, right now I'm honestly been a little bit more focused with this on my running and applying this to my running because I don't really have a exact concept uh, in practice of what is or isn't realistic for me to sort of execute or, or a pattern to hold. And I've sort of been, one of the things I've been working towards is sort of getting a point of training at this uh, cued state, this level of intensity, you know, as much uh, every day of the week in theory. But, you know, I think in, in practice, you know, maybe five days in a week, Monday through Friday, five days in a row, Monday through Friday, and then, you know, having a day on the weekend of doing sort of a longer run or something different, you know, to sort of get at some different aspects of, you know, fitness performance. And I say fitness performance because I think the threshold is fitness. And, you know, but I'm starting to sort of get to the point where now I'm thinking about how do I want to apply this over to the bike and I think especially when the indoor trainer season for me starts, you know, when the it gets cold and the clocks, actually, I don't know if the clocks are changing this year. Uh, there might have been some um, decision about not doing that anymore. But regardless, it will get dark out pretty early whether or not the clocks change. Um, but, you know, I'm going to start applying this same sort of concept of aerobic intervals to that. And I'm going to be transferring that feel and, and having that develop this in my running, um, is then going to make it easier for me to apply that to my riding and learning to recognize feel for intensity, uh, recognizing, um, it, that's how to recognize what is training and, uh, recognizing that feel for the intensity is what it means to train well. And I think a lot of talented athletes fail at this stuff because of the fact that this isn't something that they consider, you know, cause the coach and the athlete specifically, um, you know, more specifically, the coach's model uh, of the demand of training, right? The coach's model of what the correct uh, frequency plus volume plus intensity is becomes dominant. You know, in this concept, in this model, traditionally the coach is the brain and, and the athlete is just there as the will, which goes back to what we've, you know, already discussed earlier in this episode, but that 
we experience training not as something that we should like feel and evaluate and be responsive on that basis, but we experience it as something that we, it's a, it's our obligation as the athlete to accept the reality of the, of what we're doing and that the adversity is the adversity. And it's almost like this idea that, look, unfortunately, you know, sometimes we're going to experience this discomfort, but, and that's just this white noise or this static that sometimes feels like it gets turned up super loud, but there's really no, we're not told that there's any significance to it. It's just pain, right? And if only, and if the pain would go away, uh, then we wouldn't be able to be limited, right? And we could just train as hard as we could and get as, as great as we could. And yes, that idea of the will, that the coach knows what we need to do. You know, the intent, the beneficial work is what it is. And, you know, we need to manage the pain. And, you know, the best athlete can take that and put that in a box or something. Um, I think that the difference is that some athletes just have a different level of intensity. You know, for me, my concept of what threshold was, was 5.8. My brother's concept of threshold was significantly closer to his threshold. It was over it, but it was much more reasonable, right? So we're both out training at that, our concepts of threshold, we're going to have very different experiences. And the second test that I did today with Caleb, I had sort of thought that, well, I think Caleb is probably going to when, you know, not blow through his threshold because I think that for him, um, not having this like traumatized background of endurance sports or, you know, not having done, you know, that stuff in that in particular track and cross country environment, you know, prior to his interest in triathlon, uh, you know, I th- he's probably going to be better at moderating him himself. And, and we saw that that was true. Um, of all the people that um, I've done this testing with, he was the most um, close to kind of like keeping it under wraps. And I think that's interesting because I think it reflects the fact that maybe our natural disposition is to listen um, to how we felt. I had a really cool conversation um, with Matt Robinson, uh, who's an athlete who does a ton of different sports, and he had he made this really cool observation about when you see people who are new to cycling, you'll oftentimes see them get off their bike and walk their bike uphill. And I hadn't thought about this before, but he pointed out that you know it's like they're trying to maintain that good relationship with the sport. You know, like they want to you know. So if they go out and like, you know, they can't and maybe they just can't ride up the hill. Um, But it's also like, you know, they can't maybe maybe they don't have the fitness, but also they can't because if you do it, you're just sort of traumatizing yourself and you're not going to want to go back out there and do that again the next day. And, And that made me start thinking, you know, more so about to what extent do we as athletes just kind of have this ability to actually recognize these kind of limits and these balances and that actually a lot of our experience, you know, on teams and, and with coaches um, is unteaches or overrides that natural sort of programming of perception. Because when we're encouraged to just be the willpower, right, and the athlete is the will and, and the thinking is for the coach. And, you know, it reminds you of that line from that poem, theirs is not 
to reason why theirs is to do and die. Um, but like, I think athletes are just like in this weird situation, right? Where we have to demonstrate our athleticism by not asking questions. And I think that, you know, that's a very um, sort of alchemical type approach to these sports that we really are at a point that is far more basic in our understanding of this stuff. And it's going to change dramatically over the next 500 years. Um, sport, as we understand it today, is a very new phenomenon in human societies. And if we're asking questions, we're going to get better. But we seem to be at this point where people say, no, we know everything we need to know. And there's nothing more lethal to progress than the conviction that there's nothing else to know. I do think, though, that you know another dynamic here is that a lot of athletes are too ignorant to be able to participate equally in understanding and conceptualizing and planning the training with coaches, um, that they athletes do lack knowledge, but oftentimes they've never been encouraged to develop that or coaches aren't communicating what they know. I think part of that is because a lot of coaches don't really know anything and they don't have anything to communicate besides what they've already said, which is this is the workout. Um, you know, it's the Vox Populi problem though too, right? When you give voice power to people who don't know what the heck they're talking about, it's not necessarily a good thing. So, you know, that's the other side of this is that sort of, it is true that if you have a large, if you have a constituency or a cohort of people who are ignorant and you sort of communicate to them that, well, you know what's going on, you're the athlete, you know what's going on because you're the athlete. You don't have knowledge of something because you're an athlete. That's not true. You have to acquire this knowledge. And I think the number of hours that I've recorded on this podcast, I think, is reflective of the fact that there's way more to think about and understand and that whatever your sort of surface level perception of things is not valid. Um, so, in, you know, empowering athletes, you know, to sort of like overthrow the you know, bourgeoisie class of coaches isn't necessarily um, what we're talking about here either. And I think that if the responsibility of the coach was seen more as diagnostic, like trying to figure out, um, you know, what is the medium here, you know, the optimal balance for the athlete, um, be, you know, between things that are, you know, reasonably challenging versus things that are sort of too sluggish to be effective. But I also think it says a lot about our concept of this belief that people are inherently lazy and, you know, this anxiety that, you know, if you don't push people, they just won't do enough to get better. And I think that part of that comes from our, just the fact that in our culture, we, um, you know, have this expectation of labor to just perform work, you know, even though it's hyper alienating, it's, it's socially and economically devalued. And then, you know, people run around complaining, you know, people in positions of who stand to directly benefit from people increasing the amount of labor they put into uh, work. Um, they run around and complain about people not putting more effort into it. And I think that concept has trickled um, and then that trickle has turned into a flood and it's really come more and more to dominate a concept of people in, in society in general. And you know, what we want to do is we want to remember that the athlete 
is going to choose um, ultimately, regardless of whether they do it from a place of knowledge or not, to follow or abandon these concepts of training. And, you know, this idea that the athlete will always be this um, object will to this objective capacity of the coach to understand, I think is a pretty flawed perspective. And as an athlete, right, when we're making choices, I think we need to think differently about how we're making choices. And as coaches, when we're thinking about how do we engage with athletes about the experience of training, you know, and trying to get them to maybe make choices about what they're doing and how they're engaging. I think that's also something that we need to think differently about because these models of like periodization, which we talked about in the last episode, definitely emphasize removing the brain from the athlete. So we're, we're taking these people, the athletes, we're pretending that they're not going to have their own intellectual agency, their own independent agency. And then we're just like allocating all of the process of thought and understanding to the coach but athletes will still ultimately do make choices. And if we want them to make good choices, then we need to empower them to think in that in a manner that would facilitate that. But it's considered heresy to question the coach's model and the coach's ideas. But somebody needs to be asking the question, is this good training? They need to be then asking, if it's good training, how do we know if it's good? And you know, I think that really we're at a point that this is bad training. This give the coach the power of thinking is bad because I, and you know, it's not just because I I think that giving coaches this authority has something that has been generally proven to be something that they don't deal with in a responsible manner. And by not dealing in a responsible manner simply is that they don't, you know, make training decisions that are actually best for the athlete, that they prioritize the sort of management anxiety in our culture that the labor class will not put in the efforts that that is necessary. And, you know, that also happens, too, when, you know, the coach is the one who sort of has the most ownership um, and, and the biggest stake in what's going on, and the athletes really don't feel that. And, you know, I think the coach is a good coach, the role is really significant and really important. And but and that, that can be present and that's not compromised or undermined. I think that's actually enhanced uh, when the athletes also have knowledge and are also empowered as as stakeholders. So it's not, you know, an overthrow or an inversion. Um, it's, you know, addition by addition. It's not any more complicated than that. But you know, this model of brainless training, brainless execution, you know, this, if you think back to the red, yellow, green episode where we talked about um, how different people are all told um, that a different level of exertion is the same level of exertion, right? Everybody, we're going to run six times 800. Okay, gather up everybody. Okay, that was good training. That's how you train hard. That's how you get better. Well, every single one of those people felt differently. And there's never any discussion about that. There's no attempt to sort of go around and figure, well, how did everybody feel? Is that where we want to be? And athletes need to learn how it feels to train. And this is something that like, I have struggled with in certain instances um, where you know, when athletes don't like, want to go out and try different things and 
you know, it's like, well, you have to try this stuff because this isn't trying to figure it out. Like we I basically know in, in principle what we need to be doing, but if we can't, we need to find our way to the intensity so that we have this language of understanding because like, you know, the coach and the athlete, they both need to know what's going on. And the coach themselves, I think, needs to master how it should feel. I don't think that you can coach threshold if you don't know how that feels. You don't, it doesn't matter how good or bad your threshold is. You just have to be able to identify it because you can't describe, you know, the color blue if you've never seen it. But a lot of coaches are, are doing this where they like, you know, they, they pick up a piece of paper and they read about the color blue and then they go in and tell the athletes, okay, this the color blue is this, and then the athletes, but and nobody's actually seen blue. Nobody really knows what they're looking at. And I mean that, and it's oversimplification in some ways, but that is kind of what's gone gone on for the longest time. In the grand scheme of sport, the coach or at least the head coach is primary val primarily valued for their insight into competitive strategy and then teaching athletes the correct battle plan. And, and we ironically reduce sport to a thought problem, um, even well we're believing it's a mistake for athletes to think. So the coach's value is their ability to think. We think that thinking and problem solving um, and that sport is just this problem of thinking, um, except for the athletes. So the athletes aren't supposed to think. Their problem is thinking. So it's a, it's a real kind of quasi-paradoxical perspective that starts to establish itself pretty quickly in this kind of a space. But I think it's very necessary for the athlete to be able to understand what they're trying to do and that they need the right cues. You know, running training theory and cycling training theory are predicated on environments of constants. That is, for example, how the pacing model of running and training is organized in the first place. That's how it is theoretically possible to say, go out and do these intervals on the bike. But the the constancy is not there, right? People are not automatons that you just place on a um, mechanism and then have them perform physical movement. And then there's some sort of like magical automaton that as they get used, they get stronger instead of um, breaking down through use over time. Although you know, if we extend that a little further, I think when you train athletes like automatons, all that you really see is that they break down over time. They don't get stronger. And when we look at these brainless approach to approaches to training, these approaches of like, this is a 72nd quarter, this is 350 watts, this is a hundred meters swimming. 60 seconds and then you know you just do that and you don't care about how it feels it doesn't matter if it feels totally different from one day to the next you do that because it's all about the athletes achieving a certain level of exertion that apparently exists outside of our conscious mind and that the conscious mind is this is this barrier and like learning how to like turn off your brain and how to focus and overcome this stuff and people romanticize it. You know, in sport, you really learn that you can do things that you didn't think you could do. Um, I, I Maybe, right? But maybe in sport, you're learning, you should be learning that, hmm, when you do things that you didn't think you could do, maybe there's a reason why you didn't think you could do them, because in aggregate, are you getting better? 
right? Yes, some some of the apples will come out a little bit sweeter and a little bit more aesthetically pleasing than others. But at the end of the day, they're all just apples. But we can't, it's the allegory of the cave, right? Like, we don't know that those shadows on the wall are shadows because we've never seen anything different. And the effectiveness of the training plan is oftentimes based on how close Not the effectiveness in terms of the effectiveness of the intent, but like the actual effectiveness in practice, you know, the the more desirableness of the apple, right? So how close, or think about it this way, right? How close the apple gets to to tasting like an orange, to being an orange, um, is oftentimes like based on accident, right? So sometimes um, the plans accidentally get athletes uh, to the correct state of exertion. And then they get to accidentally achieve the get closer to or more of the better stimulus. And so like for my brother, right, identifying threshold as a much more moderate and controlled effort, well over threshold, but totally different and, and more controlled than my 5.8 millimoles. And it's not that one is right or wrong. It's just that mine is going to be really ineffective because I'm, I'm working harder and that doesn't make me tougher. It has nothing to do with with toughness, and it's hard to separate that. It's not wow, you know that one athlete though. You know he really his concept of threshold is really working hard. Well, I mean it's a disparity in experience that we've learned different things, we've learned different cues, and I would argue that a big part of his proportional success is because he has always come in at intensities that are much closer to where he actually needs to be. And others of us, just no matter how focused and, and committed and engaged we are, if the intensity comes in too high, at the end of the day, there's nothing we can do about that. And if we don't have the brain or the capacity to think, then we're reliant on an external force. But the coach's concern is almost always that you're not training hard enough. And so if you go fast, the coach says, oh, that's thank God they're getting in better shape, or thank God they've, they've done enough work to actually improve. And... You know, when we're training, though, in this manner, like we're always responding to a set of cues. And and we've sort of been talking about cues and, and cueing and, you know, learning how to cue ourselves when we train. But and this even this model of the coach is the brain, the athlete is the will, that has a set of cues to it as well. And that means that there are going to be different kinds of cues. And that means that some of the cues we learn are going to be better than others. You know, my cues are not, we're not as effective because I go out and I think I know how to run. I've been doing it for a long time. I try to run threshold and I'm out of control, right? And then my brother goes out to run. He's been doing it for a long time. He tries to run threshold over, but not, you know, outside of the realm of, you know, you could certainly, something that he could work out at that, you know, a couple, maybe once or a couple times a week. You know, and, and, and be successful with that, you know, hey, do two workout, two hard workouts a week model. And that's why I think at the end of the day, some people experience growth is because they just arrive at an intensity that is closer to where they need to be by accident rather than by design. And I think that, you know, if you have a below a certain level of success as your success rate, then I don't I think you're queuing just because it works occasionally doesn't mean it works at all. Because I think it's possible, and this is what I, I tried to articulate earlier around the growth that I feel that I've experienced and, and my sense of my training intensity um, just you know over, an, over nine weeks of workouts 
Um, I think the total number of, of workouts I did practicing this, you know, was, was maybe, has maybe been like 31 um, sessions, which on the one hand, you know, I think that's a lot of practice, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, that's really not that much. And especially when it's playing out, you know, in, in just two months. But it also shows that if you practice this stuff a lot frequently, it's not just the fitness that's going to change, but your brain, the way you're thinking about and processing and you're aware of your training is going to change. Because when we're training, what we're trying to do is we're trying to reach the appropriate homeostatic disruption. For example, if we are able to do the same thing every day forever, do you think that it's likely we're getting the desired disruption to that homeostatic state that would lead to adaptation? Probably not, right? So there's some level of challenge, right? Like there has to be some level of challenge, which means there'll have to be some level of fatigue, which means there'll have to be some process, right? You know, of what we generically call recovery. Okay, so that is inevitable, right? That there's going to be challenge, fatigue, and then, you know, there's going to be a, a lower period. When I did, I did my, um, you know, I had a step on my test that was, basically seven minute pace. It might've been more like 655, but let's just call it seven minute pace. Cause it's a nice, neat number, seven minute pace at 366 Watts. And, um, I did that in mine and then I did it, um, with Caleb and with, with Caleb's test, you know, I ran, you know, I waited around for like an hour, um, before we started his test. At the time I get to that seven minute test, I'm now 14 miles into my morning between these two uh, test sessions slash, you know, they're also sort of like runs workouts because, you know, like my session took eight and a half miles. Um, His took also about eight and a half miles. I only did the first five and a half miles of his because I was like, I'm done, (laughs) you know, have fun. Um, But like you could feel the difference um, there. So the the watts were the same. Um, The pace was the same, but my heart rate was 10 beats higher. And uh, I don't think that means anything in terms of the, the threshold indicator, but I think it reflects that, you know, that, that fatigue is increasing, right? And so I decided to not keep going because I was listening to how I felt. And um, in the past, I would have absolutely just been like, if I can, I will, because, you know, that's what it means to be an athlete and that's how you get better. And if I had done, you know, that last um, or that, you know, additional three or three and a quarter miles, that he did, I, you know, that would have been a mistake. And, um, you know, it leads to the question of, are we doing enough, right? Because we know that to challenge that homeostatic state, to get to that homeostatic disruption, we need to challenge ourselves. And the area in which we see that challenge occur is in intensity. But how do we know if we're doing enough to do that, right? Because it's just creating just one point of disruption probably going to be enough? Eh, probably not really, right? So we know we have to scale that up. And how far do we scale that? And intensity is complicated because intensity is, is sort of this combination of an attempt to articulate the degree of work being done instantaneously, comparing that degree of instant work to the maximum instant work capacity. But then it's also being determined through frequency and volume both within the session, within the overall fabric or, or pattern of training. If you think of training as like a quilt where you, you know, some, I think when people think about it as recovery in hard days, they're sort of like putting these quilts, quilt squares together. You know, think about it in this context. If 
a runner takes a single six-minute pace stride. So just one step with one leg at that six-minute mile pace intensity. Or a you know swimmer takes one stroke. Or um, a Nordic skier takes one double pull. Or a cyclist does one pedal stroke at 350 watts and then waits. And then they all wait 60 seconds in between. In between, will they be able to get more strides of six-minute pace or whatever that proportional intensity is in the other sport? It's too complicated to keep talking about. You know, giving kudos to all the existence of these sports. Let's just pick the running example, um, right? If you do that one stride of six-minute pace and you take wait 60 seconds, then you do another single stride of six-minute pace. Are you going to get more six-minute pace accomplished than if you did this? Um, while running 180 strides in a row before resting. You know, probably, yes, you'd be there a long time, but you could probably accumulate more strides if you just did one stride at that intensity and took 60 60 seconds of rest than if you did if you took 180 strides before taking 60 seconds of rest. So the intensity here, on the one hand, is the intensity of six-minute pace running, or again, right, whatever sort of equivalent of that one movement uh, at a fixed intensity is and whatever your endurance sport of choice would be. But it's also clearly the case that the volume of the work is going to dictate the actual intensity. So the more strides of six-minute pace, right, the more repetitions is going to increase the intensity. And that's why demand training can only be determined through a combined consideration of frequency plus volume plus intensity, but at the same time, the frequency and the volume themselves are also contributing to what intensity is. And this makes it so that this is not something that we can simply just mindlessly apply will to, that the athlete needs to understand what's going on so that the athlete can like be asking questions and, and be interrogative or, or metacognitive and and engage with their process in a manner reflective of intelligence. Um, and the way that we do this is is through training cues. So, and a training cue, you know, answers the questions, how do we know what we're doing when we're execute when we're executing a active training and uh, training cues also answer the question, how do we identify whether or not Um, we are at the sort of state of exertion or training performance that we want to be at. So when I look out the windows here, you know, where I sit and record this onto the street, I see people running or cycling up the hill all the time. And as I look at them, I can make an evaluation if I want. I can put myself in that perspective of the coach observer and make an evaluation of how hard I think they are training how hard I think they're exerting themselves. And some people, for example, riding up the hill, they look very comfortable. Some people, it looks very hard, etc. So as I'm sitting here, being the, the armchair athlete, the coach, uh, what am I responding to in that evaluation process? Well, I think, you know, when I reflect on this, I'm looking at the physical movement of the athlete. I think the physical appearance of the athlete. I think to some extent, the fitness fashion, you know, and all of these are based on some constructed notion of, Aesthetic. I think if you see somebody who looks more in the style of presentation of athlete, then you're more inclined to see them as performing competently 
and under control. And if you see somebody who looks less so like that, uh, you're more inclined to reach the opposite conclusion. And I think what's most significant about this is that we have a natural tendency to just sort of assume by default that our perceptions are reasonable. You know, and eyewitness testimony is like the most unreliable form of evidence, but culturally within the justice, so-called justice system, it is considered to be the highest, most reliable form of evidence. And I think that reflects the fact that our socially constructed understandings are dominant and that our socially constructed perspectives of contexts and, and situations and um, instances and et cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, I think you could try to quantify that concept of what is perceived or articulate that, I mean, in, in different ways, but that ultimately the social view of that is predominant and significant. And it doesn't matter as much what might actually be true because our reality is fostered through perception for the most part. And if we want to see beyond what we see, we have to do things very differently. And so I can look out the window and I can look at people exercise and feel that I can make certain assumptions. And then the problem is there's sort of a phenomena where, you know, I could be reasonable to some extent and knowing an athlete and looking for some valid um, considerations based on, you know, what I feel that I'm seeing. But how can we really know which of those instances are correct? How can we know which of them are false, false positive? And how do we know which of them are just incorrect? And I think if you maintain this uh, cueing dynamic where the coach apparently knows what the athlete is experiencing, then you're never going to be very effective in your training. And when people go and we buy training plans, right? If you think about for adult athletes, people who are, um, you know, looking to do an event or get into an endurance sport, and, well, I need coaching, right? Because that's one of those things that you hear is that, well, you got to get a coach if you want to get good. And I think, you know, that's a not all squares or rectangles scenario where um, you can get really good using a coach, but, you know, hiring or paying for a coach doesn't necessarily guarantee anything because just because there's a coach and there's an exchange of um, goods and services doesn't mean that automatically that exchange implies the benefit. It just means that there hasn't been an economic exchange. And, you know, if you buy a schedule, a schedule really assumes that the coach knows. And then in that context, you know, you might never really even interact with or, or talk with this coach. And you're, and you're paying them to like, for them to give you this template because they have this knowledge of, you know, what training should be. And then I think that just further is an extension of the notion that it doesn't really matter um, how we feel at all or that the feelings that we have the subjective experience of exercise is this thing that we either navigate or don't because the acts of training um, are physical and they are physical, but our feelings and experiences are also physical because our whole brain, right, is a physical mechanism. So that means every emotion um, and system we have is a part of that. And if you think about the central governor theory, the central governor model, all of the things that we're feeling are coming from um, parts of the brain that exist in this, not necessarily like outside of ourselves, but in this, you know, aspect of unconsciousness, right? That it's a part of our um, 
brain's awareness of itself and how the organism, you know, maintains itself. And then it, you know, communicates in a sense to this, you know, specific space within ourselves, consciousness, which is where we experience identity. And we're not acknowledging the significance of that consciousness or this identity. And when I coached cross country, um, you know, I ran with the athletes every day. And, you know, in some ways I would say that was, uh, in some ways it, you know, it isn't because you have to like do all of these miscellaneous things that are not really rewarding, like, you know, setting, you know, identifying the meets and, you know, organizing the meets that you host. And, you know, that's sort of fine, but it's not exactly the, what is like the in, intriguing, challenging and rewarding aspect of it. But one of the things that I did really, you know, think was meaningful and really also informative was that, you know, I ran with the athletes every day. And if you've listened to the pod, I've, you know, in general, I try to use experiences that I or other people have had, because my feeling is that's evidence. And just as much as any, uh, you know, clinical context evaluation of, you know, the physiological responses to X, Y, Z variables, um, our, the social reality of sport is also evidence. And, you know, our, and if you've listened, then you know that we had a uniquely successful um, cross-country team during the time that I coached that program. And I think, you know, I look at that and I say, well, what did we do differently? Because if we're having different results, um, you know, something must be different, right? Logically, right? You can't get different outputs um, if it's the exact same inputs, right? And I, you know, yeah, there's different athletes, but the data suggested that overall it wasn't just, you know, a unique individual, right? We were having an aggregate level of improvement um, where we had 15 runners who were top seven, if not better than the number one runner on the majority of other teams in the state. And I ran with the athletes every day. So when we think about this concept of queuing, you know, for me, to be totally clear, when I started doing that and I coached, I said, well, I'm to myself, I, my decision was I'm not going to do this if I can't exercise. I'm not going to give up exercising. And a lot of coaches don't exercise, although for a lot of them, I don't think they're giving it up. I think that they probably weren't anyway. And, you know, it's is interesting to look at, you know, people who are, you know, kind of profoundly unhealthy. And I don't think, think by the way, that acknowledging somebody is unhealthy is an insult. I think that it's just important to understand the reality of the situations, I guess, that we put ourselves in physically. But you look at these people who are profoundly unhealthy, and you wonder, um, how can you be in a position to make determinations about what the athletes are experiencing? Because whatever relationship you had with exercise, that's clearly so far back um, behind you that it's not even discernible in, in that rearview mirror anymore. But in, I came to realize by running with the athletes that I was gaining better awareness of what was going on. Because I was able to actually, you know, observe and pay attention to how people are feeling and, and exerting themselves. And I think that's actually a normal thing, right? That's not like, oh, some crazy coaching strategy. You exercise with other people, you learn to, over time, sort of detect the indicators in their body language. Maybe it's listening to their breathing. And you just, you know, you, their, how does their pattern of movement change? You can tell whether or not 
people are uncomfortable, whether or not they're going easy. And then you use that information to um, inform your decision making if it's in a competitive situation or (laughs) you don't. But the people who do usually have much better competitive outcomes because they're taking advantage of the information that's available to them in a way that is going to like improve their experience. Right. And that's the athlete using their brain. And so we started to kind of eliminate essentially this coach is the brain, the athlete is the will concept. And when we move through, right, a process where we're shifting away from that original dichotomy and this emphasis on hierarchy and like who is power, right, this subject-object relationship, um, I think that we start to remove the extent to which the athlete is dependent on the coach for the brain. Um, you know, and like I encouraged athletes to do the training. Sure. Like, you know, we often say, see a coach as somebody who gets us to do the thing that we don't want to do. Um, but I also have, you know, empathy for what it's like to be genuinely strung out. You know, I've been on the receiving end of, um, you know, subject object, right. Training, right. Where it's like, this is the thing, this is the plan, your experiences, essentially irrelevant because the only thing that's going to work is if you execute this plan. And if you can't execute this plan, you know, maybe that's too bad. But, you know, at the end of the day, like this is the plan. There's no other alternative to this. And or any alternative would be a compromise and lead to worse results. And, you know, as I, you know, trying to frame with the lactate threshold stuff that and, and the evidence profile that I'm developing for that for myself, and I'm you know going to start hopefully developing with other people, that this is not true. That you can you should pay attention to the athlete's experience, and you know so as the coach though, you also start to pay attention to the athletes, not because you're talking to them too, and right. And if I see they look like they're kind of tired or they're kind of uncomfortable. Then I talk to them, how are you feeling? You know, how does this session feel? And then I said, well, these are some of the ways that it should feel. And so then I'm actually empowering them to think. And on the one hand, somebody could try to make the counter argument to what I'm saying and saying, well, you're still telling them what to do. You're telling them what they're experiencing. And well, that's not what we're talking about here. And I think if you have that interpretation, I think that's a reflection of the fact that we think that there's the only alternative to this coach as the brain and the athlete as the will dynamic is an inversion, you know, where the athlete sort of sees control, uh, you know, of the means of production, basically. And um, they sort of, you know, do what they want. And then people apply whatever Lord of the Flies conception they have to that. Um, But when we consider what we're really trying to do here, I think it makes more sense if we look at it in the context of how did we do this in practice? And this is an example here of the difference between the subject-object relationship of coaching and coach, coaches to athletes versus this idea of what becomes possible when you start teaching athletes about how to feel, right? And how to feel, but maybe we would be better um, at articulating this if we said that teaching them how to recognize what they're feeling and then how to use that information to sort of try to move more towards how they should be feeling 
And I think this idea of how do you feel is sometimes seen as coddling. Um, and I hate that term for a variety of reasons, you know, but number one, it implies that engaging with people in terms of how they feel that that's bad and that you can't shape um, athletes. I saw a Instagram video a couple weeks ago with Dwight Howard, the NBA, former NBA basketball player with his, you know, kids, elementary age kids, I assume. Um, and he had them in the home gym and he had this kid on the, whatever they call those, the, you know, attack bike, whatever the, those stupid stationary bikes that you see, you know, really popular in CrossFit. And, you know, the kid was crying, you know, I don't want to do this. And then he's just being made to do it anyway. And, you know, it was interesting to watch people in the comments and there were some sexist things like, you know, women wouldn't understand, you know, women wouldn't know that this is necessary. But, you know, mostly it was very positive. People were very happy to see this. You know, they were, they were being made to, you know, do this and the kids was being made to do this. And that's really going to, that's how you get it. That's how whatever, you know, building character, all this stuff and all that stuff is wrong. And, um, but it also reflects the fact that like what you're doing right away is you're teaching this individual that how they feel is not something you should listen to. And that's a really narrow cultural um, ideology. And it goes against what we under, what we should actually know, which is that organisms have evolved over a significant scale of time, right? Mind boggling large scale of time, billions of years. And the things that we feel and experience are actually a key part of our ability to be successful as organisms. And if we are training our brains, if we're laying on top this trauma in a sense of you don't, how you feel doesn't matter, you know, I don't think that that's effective. So teaching about how you feel is actually engaging with understanding what your body is actually doing and you know working on learning how to practice well right has to do with knowing how you feel but i think when you look at the way people feel as this concept of feeling as an extension of being weak or soft and your feelings limit you and it prevents you from doing what you need to do i think that's where you have you know when you say to people like go out and run at threshold it should be this moderate controlled effort and they're still just blasting through um, that metabolic state, you know, into this highly glycolytic level of exertion, I think that that's, you know, a big red flag about how we're learning the wrong things because then you can't, you have no idea where you actually are. But then the fact that you can learn over just, you begin to relearn essentially because you're just engaging with this, these feelings and these um, systems of understanding that are present in your body and you're re-engaging with those, you can learn pretty quickly because that's in there. We're, it's a part of our, our mechanism of, of survival is to have awareness of how we feel. So in the first uh, three weeks of the cross-country season when I was coaching, um, we had uh, a routine that we would do. We did this the last, this kind of got established um, over the last few years that I did this and this became our, the norm. And for the, like, it was maybe, you know, the 12 to 14 strongest guys, we maybe had like 27 to 30 guys on the team for reference. So about 50% of the team plus or minus, um, this consisted of 
an eight mile, 18 mile run on Monday, um, where we tried to pick a loop each year that was, you know, a hundred feet per mile. Then on Tuesday, we would do 20 by 200 meters and with a 30 minute run before and after. And on Friday, we would do three sets of five by 800. And we did this for three weeks. And, you know, for reference in between, we would do, you know, maybe like 70 to 80 minutes of very easy running and some 150 meter floats, stride outs on the grass. And so this was a three week um, cycle. And I said that last year I had found these little tiny three ounce, two or three ounce maple syrup bottles um, in the grocery store. And I thought, oh, that's kind of funny. So I bought them and then I said, hey, anybody who can complete all the workouts will get one of these maple syrup bottles. So there was only one guy on the team who at the end of those three weeks completed all of the sessions. And, you know, frankly, I think it's because he was always willing, running well under his physical potential. And, and I don't say that as an insult. If anything, maybe that's a bit of a compliment, right? That he was the only guy on the team who was able to progress there. You know, I think that, you know, as an individual, he probably could have, you know, benefited from, you know, a little bit more consistency overall, but in, in the grand scheme of things, but his, like, if the goal of the season, which it wasn't, but if the goal of the season was like, whoever completes all these sessions wins, well, it doesn't matter how bad, how well you do in those sessions, because, you know, if it's a last man standing thing, there's only one individual, but none of the runners who were, none of the 10 fastest guys were able to do all of the sessions. And, you know, I think if somebody looked at that and they said, well, what's your periodized model or what's sort of your, your training cycle here? And I gave them this and I said, well, here's our here's a training cycle, then people are going to take that and say, oh, I need to do that. But what you're not understanding is that through the relationship between the coach and the athlete, the relationship of communication, of understanding of the coach, you know, I as in the role of the coach, I'm using my knowledge to say, this is kind of where we want to be. I'm trying to communicate this to the athletes and because I need them to then communicate to me what they're experiencing. Um, and I'm collecting information and then because I know how they're feeling, then they and then they know what we're trying to accomplish, then they're making determinations about whether or not they've had enough. And, you know, when, you know, these guys want to be good at running, so they're not going to not run, um, you know, in some, in, unless they can. Most of the time, the issue is they'd be like, I feel like crap and, you know, I don't want to do this, you know, but I got to do it anyway. And I would usually have to, I would almost always have to tell guys to stop. And my goal was to get them. And every time they would come and say, you know, I don't, I'm not feeling this. I wanted to positively reinforce that, you know, that's good that you're identifying this. Like, this is what we want to be able to do as athletes is know when to not do what we want to do because these training efforts are good in theory. And what I would have done now too, is I would have taken that if I was still coaching, I would have want to apply some of the thinking that I have now and say that, okay, if we can't do all of the sessions then the sessions are not the right sessions. But at the time the compromise was, well, well, these are good sessions, but some days we can't do them. And so if we can't do them, that's okay. We just won't. And so sometimes people do a couple reps. Sometimes it didn't matter, right? There was no do another one. It was just like, no, if you're done, that's fine. You know? And then as the coach, then my job was to help them like not feel like they were failing or losing something by not being done and, you know, talking about how, look, if you can't do it, 
and you're not going to get the benefit. So there's no point. You know, the best thing you can do is stop. And I'd say, look, if you're restless and you want to walk around the track, you want to go jog, you know, easy around the park, like you can do that. But you're done is done. And, you know, because I think fatigue is not always predictable as we think. And when we design a template of training, you know, when I'm thinking in my head, okay, these are our initial three weeks, we're going to do these sessions. You know, that has to be based on some sort of implicit assumption about what the fatigue is going to look like. But the point of stimulus and the point of sufficiency and the point of overload aren't always the same thing. So in other words, right, what is the key we should be responding to when we're training? And, you know, the reality is, is that obeying the coach's brain is a kind of cue. And then obeying the athlete's brain is a kind of cue. And I think we have this dynamic of how do we feel and then how do we use our knowledge about doing something that's challenging to get better at what we're trying to do? Because like I've said, we are looking for a level of homeostatic disruption and it needs to be more than one arbitrary unit, right? It needs to be more than one, the minimal unit that constitutes a disruption. It has to be significant enough to be beneficial, So that means there is a level of challenge. And so that means there is going to be a level of, hmm, you know, I don't know, right? And so confidence isn't overriding how you feel. Confidence is getting to a state where you don't have anything to override because you have a sense of surety or certainty. When I go, you know, swim golf club, I'm not concerned. I have no, I'm not thinking about it. I just swing because I've hit so, I've hit, a million golf balls or whatever over the years, you know, I, I don't worry about that. When I go to play music, I don't worry about that. But when I go to do a workout that's too intensive, I'm constantly thinking and trying to figure out that's not confidence. Okay. And you can't force yourself to be confident by saying, just be confident. Confidence is an actual experience and you get there, right. As you become fluent and in engaging with the right set of cues. And so I think we can divide these into two categories. I think we have external cues, and I think we have internal cues. And I think we can subdivide external cues into at least two groups. I would say one we could say are quantitative, and these could be things like paces assigned by the coach. It could be the VDOT pace table from Jack Daniels. It could be um, training zone calculations from... Um, your power meter test, you know, with a 20-minute test or some sort of FTP test. It could be a uh, lactate threshold test. It could be uh, you look. You could try to use heart rate. You could try to just use velocity. Um, you could try to use power in a sense outside of zones. You could use GPS data. You can use fitness graphs. I also think external cues can be social, so they can be driven by where do I fit in a pecking order. It can be driven by, you know, a desire to get approval. It can be driven by a desire just for recognition, for validation, um, trying to take segments on Strava on the bike. Um, those are all social cues about how hard we should work and what we need to do. Um, you know, fear of judgment, fear of negative feedback also right would fit into that space. Internal cues are things like, how do our muscles feel? How do our bo- how does our body feel physically, right? You know, in in the muscles or the limbs or the parts of the body that are being used for the exercise. What's our level of 
mental, psychological experience? Are we in mental agony? Our respiratory frequency, right? Can we feel our, our rate of breathing and respiration? How does our cardiovascular stress feel? Um, what's our level of thirst, right? You know, how do we feel biomechanically in terms of biomechanical velocity? Do we feel fluid? Do we feel like we're straining? Um, you know, how close do we feel we are to the point of failure? So there's a ton of different cues. And those are just a handful that, you know, popped into my head as I tried to jot down some ideas um, for what could be some examples. But there's a wide variety. And I would argue all training is done based off of some cue system. And even though people might think that you have some periodized model where, you know, the athlete is listening to the coach and the better the athlete is, when you look at it, the more likely you're going to see the athlete is complying with the coach's specific inflexible expectations and that, you know, they both recognize that, you know, the mind needs to overcome the body or the, you know, and uh, the mind or the mind is needs to overcome itself, right? And that pain is weakness, leaving the body, you know, fill in whatever your favorite, you know, absurdist um, concept of what training is supposed to be in that space. And, you know, that's a cue system, right? I mean, you're cueing yourself to not pay attention to cues, but is a cue. Um, but if we simplify things, we think that we make it easier, that simpler is easier. That's not always the case. I think it's actually oftentimes not the case. Um, simplifying is changing something. You're not making it easier, you're changing it. And what we want to engender is simplification through mastery, okay? That when we master something, that's what makes it easy, okay? And then it makes it appear simple. So s things being simple is a product of confidence. It's an illusion of competence. It's a symptom of being good at what you're doing. It is, does not mean that then you can say, well, I'm just going to simplify blank, and that's going to make it easy, and then I'm going to be successful. So tying your shoes is easy because you've mastered it. It's simple. But if you ever taught somebody how to tie, your sh tie their shoes or tie knots, it's not simple. It's complicated. It's frustrating. You know, it takes practice. Um, but everybody learns how to tie their shoes, essentially. So, and it's simple. Once you know how to do it, it's simple. It's mindless. You don't even think about it because you've mastered it. So simplification is really achieved through mastery. And so we don't want to remove the question of how we should cue ourselves. We want to be focusing on that. So, you know, the coach as the brain needs to use their knowledge and experience about training to help the athlete develop their brain. Um, and then they focus on achieving mastery of the experience of whatever the exercise practice or practices are that they're applying to improve and sort of reach their targeted outcomes. And I would say, you know, I think about it in my experience, you know, what was I sort of formatively cued in? Um, and this doesn't come from any specific individual per se. Um, it comes from, you know, a combination of experiences. But, you know, this is not something that, you know, I learned, you know, from, you know, parental example or parental expectation. But I would say I was very much cued to the idea of, well, whatever the teacher or coach rewards or praises, that's the direction you want to be going in. Um, not to be celebrated, but because if you're getting that praise, then then you know then that's how you know you're doing it right. And like they would acknowledge that they know what you're doing is correct. You don't know because you're new, right? Or they have experience. That's the whole concept of the teacher or the coach in theory 
is that you know they have this knowledge and this capacity to direct you in a way that is going to be more achieving. So I was very attentive to that. And for my coaches, uh, you know, in high school and college, I think the perspective of what should be praised was velocity of performance and that they felt that velocity of performance was really limited by um, will, right? And that the ability to create velocity was an act of will. And that, you know, that's what I absorbed, (laughs) certainly, for a long time. And, you know, or, you know, right, the expression of talent, right? That there was also some concept of talent, like, you know, I had a coach who would always just generically be like, well, they're an athlete. And then you sort of be like, huh, well, I guess so then if they're an athlete, you're not saying I'm an athlete, so I must not be an athlete. So what is going on? Why is this distinction significant? What do I need? So I guess I need to be an athlete. Okay, I don't really know what that means, except that that in practice is better, superior performance to me. How do I do that? How do I get to that level of competence? And okay, well, if they know if they're an athlete, then they're giving me feedback to do that. And as I got older, you know, in high school, I started to realize that um, they weren't actually doing that, right? But you're still stuck in the system where you're supposed to do what the coach says. And we're really, really, I mean, coaches, it's interesting how critical as a society we are of teachers and we put in very little trust in teachers, but we put tons of touch trust in coaches. Um, and maybe there's something democratic about that in nature because uh, we don't seem to trust people who are knowledgeable or qualified, but we seem very willing to trust people who are, you know, basically untrained. And mo- the vast majority of people who take any size of a check as a coach every year in the United States basically know virtually nothing about what they're doing, right? And everything for them is hearsay, and now it's like whatever whatever they looked up on the internet about training for, um, you know, cycling and, you know, the first article they found about a power meter or the first article they found about couch to 5K. When I did swim team, which is the first endurance, endurance sport I did, there was no feedback, right? We went in and we just sort of swam along and we left. And, like, there was never any discussion of the split times, um, any of that. And, you know, when we went to swim meets, I just kind of liked to keep to myself. I would, you know, whatever, read a book or eat pretzels or whatever, but I wasn't, I had no interest for whatever reason at that time. I had really no interest in socializing or hanging out with the other kids. I was sort of like, I feel like my, oh, I'm here to do these races, right? And to swim these races. And for whatever reason, I'm here. Um, And this is what I'm doing. And that's was, became the totality of my experience with that. And I was perfectly happy doing it that way. I wouldn't have wanted to do it any other way. Um, But there was no feedback. And then because I wasn't really engaging um, socially, you know, and trying to make friends with the other kids on on the team, um, I also like didn't really see any particular significance to what was going on, right? There's really no feedback. The only conversation I remember ever having about my training was when, um, you know, he showed up and I missed the warm up, and which is like at the beginning, these meets take literally all day. And, you know, you, there's like a time at the beginning of the day where you can warm up in the pool. And there's literally no point because you're just going to sit around for hours before you're going to race. And, you know, the coach was unhappy that I missed the warm up. And I said, well, if I PR in all of my races, then how about I doesn't matter? I don't have to show up for the warm up in the future. 
And they were like, okay, because I think they were pretty confident there's no way that could happen. And so, like, we had this deal, and so I PR'd in all the races, and I said, oh, so now I don't have to do the warm-up anymore. And they go, no, you still need to do the warm-up. And, I mean, it, was, it wasn't really that hostile, but it was just like, okay, but I literally just proved that there's no need for me to do the warm-up. And we had this, like, conversation, and then it's just like, oh, okay, so, you know, what you say doesn't have any significance, so now I don't really have any particular, don't necessarily disrespect you, I actually thought all of my swim coaches were perfectly pleasant people, but there was also no particular level of like respect either. <laughs> it was just like, whatever. Um, okay. I'm just going to ignore you because I think your kind of perspective on this is a little bit constrained, but in cross country, it was very different. Um, you know, the whole and the feeling of the exercise was awful. Um, it was so intensive and uh, I realize now that basically in the swimming, my if I if we had been testing lactate when I was ten years old or whatever, I would have been really under control. And that in the cross country stuff we was doing, it was just out of control. Um, you know, super super deep into uh, lactate accumulation. You know, crushing your legs rep after rep after rep, where the first rep is enough, and then you do six, seven, eight, nine, whatever more. And it was all quantitative feedback subject to whatever the coach's um, perception of what that should be. And it was very much about, you know, this strategy of divide 5,000 meters in intervals and run them as fast as possible. And then by the end of the season or whatever, at some point, you'll just start running that pace for the whole race in the workouts. And it doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for basically anybody on the team. It basically doesn't work for anybody. But again, that's that apples to apples concept that you know there's going to be some variance somebody's going to do better with it and so they say well see it works because they did better and it's like well you're not really comparing you're comparing like to like so you can't really reach that conclusion so but that was the q system right his splits which were based on i don't know what i don't think i've ever been assigned a running pace for a workout by a coach ever that had any actual correlation to what i could do period and I think the fact that that was the experience means that I can't really blame those individual coaches, that that is the paradigm that a lot of these coaches are absorbing. It's a social, cultural issue about these sports. And, you know, but if the coach recognized you and approved of what you were doing, then you were doing it correctly. And if coaches don't, then you were doing it wrong. So, you know, that was my only sense of what was going on. And I knew that it wasn't working, but I didn't have, you know, for a long time, a sense of what I needed to do differently. My, my thing was like, well, I need to do more running. I need to practice this more and get better at the act of, of running and get better fitness by just running more. But, you know, the whole problem is when you look at the demand of training, that it's frequency, volume, intensity. And because the intensity was being cued incorrectly, it didn't matter. Running more didn't work because I was just basically adding more of an ineffectual, destructive intensity. So what are the limitations then of this praise or validation method? Well, I think it's pretty clear, right, that you don't want to be, you know, a dumb animal of an athlete where you don't, you know, speak for yourself, you don't communicate, but the coach, you know, has authority um, and so they have to be confident in themselves and, you know, in their sense of self, basically, to give 
athletes the capacity to speak. Um, because if they don't, then they can't really figure out what's going on. But if your mindset is, this is a paradigm issue, right? The paradigm, this is why this stuff is always so complicated because you can explain it in a way, I hope that sounds simple and obvious, but then to put it in practice or when you look around and say, well, why doesn't this happen in practice? Because it's a paradigm distinction, right? They literally don't see this as correct, right? And I'm sure some people... I think some people have listened to the podcast and they've been like, this resonates with me. This is great. You know, this is really speaking to my experience. And I, I'm sure for other people, they maybe try to listen and either they don't like the sound of my voice <laughs> or they essentially are like, no, this is not what exercise is supposed to be. This is not what training is. And they're just looking for something to continue to speak to and reinforce their paradigm. And that's okay, right? We have the, obviously, right? This is just a, podcast like you can consume what you want to consume but i think that that distinction of of rejection is there and you see this like that nash equilibrium you know which i think comes up again and again and again in athletics you see that nash equilibrium occurring um you know in quote i hate this term but content you know as if there's like some box out there that is full of stuff um but you know this content about this topic of exercise and it's just people just creating the exact same thing uh, because they're trying to like make money and have a social media presence and that's fine go for it but let's acknowledge that one of the consequences of that is that it reinforces this paradigm because then it creates this echo chamber where people aren't asking questions because if you ask questions and you you know try to apply some divergent thinking nobody wants to listen to it I mean, not literally nobody, but, you know, compared to the scale of interest that you can get if you just say the same things everybody else does, um, you know, by that scale, right, it sort of becomes shouting into the dark. But fortunately, shouting into the dark is one of my favorite activities, (laughs) as evidenced by this podcast. Um, But it would also be the case that if we can improve, right, our queuing system, like how much beyond, you know, that do we need to go to see benefits? And I think not much because even though it might be very different than what athletes are being cued to do, it's not actually like, it's literally easier to back off, you know, because it's just like your execution and your success rate with something easier is obviously going to be higher. And, you know, when things are hard, that usually means we need a different strategy, you know, because we can't ultimately be successful if something is hard. But if we just take it as a barrier of, well, I'm not that talented or I'm not that smart, we're not going to think that we need a different strategy. We're not going to say, oh, this being hard is a bad thing. A lot of people say, oh, it's good. I like it. I want it, I want it to be really hard. You know, then you hear athletes talk about this. I want it to be miserable. I want it to be hot. It's like, well, no, you don't because the body doesn't like that. So you can claim that you do, but nobody wants it to be really hot. Right. And then they might say, I have a strategic advantage because I know that I'm tougher than everybody. And it's just like, you know, those kinds of dialogues and those kinds of narratives are kind of like, whoa, is that true? And it seems like magic. I want to see what happens here. Right. It captures our attention. It captures our imagination. But it's obviously going to be the case that the level of performance and the level of progression is going to be different if we change our cueing, because we're going to then be acting in different ways in relation to training. You know, for example, I think you're going to immediately have more energy available to race. 
you know, never mind the impact on the actual training practices in terms of their efficacy, but just doing this stuff easier, listening to more internal cues and learning to evaluate those and communicate about those athlete among ourselves as athletes, between athletes and coaches, um, then like you're going to see more performance in races just because people won't feel totally dead when they get to the races. And, you know, it's frustrating in the abstract. I've kind of like dissociated myself from feelings about this stuff in terms of like actually being genuinely bothered by it. But it is frustrating in the abstract that you look back in racing and I think, wow, there's basically every single race I did, I got to and my legs didn't work. And I didn't understand that was what was going on. I was just like, oh, I'm not good at this stuff. But you kind of, you really, then you wonder like, huh, you know, to what extent is my sense of self informed by, you know, those experiences? Because we do see sports as this crucible of identity and that it reveals something about ourselves. And of course, you can't really go to people and say, look, actually all those races, like I was actually way better than that. I just, my legs were dead. And, you know, if my legs had felt better, yeah, it would have been night and day. Right. Nobody believes that because, well, no, then if you doesn't matter how your legs felt matters is your willpower. And when you demonstrated you lacked willpower and, you know, so what should the coach really try to do then? Should they be designing periodization or is the priority teaching the athlete to understand cues? And I think the coach should be using their brain to give the athlete a brain because two heads are better than one. And willpower is extremely overrated. Uh, it's hyperbole to say that anything is the most fill in the blank, but I think willpower is borderline the most irrelevant thing that we can identify in athletics. And I know that that's a pretty radical statement, but I think willpower is borderline irrelevant. And if an athlete wants to be there, then they will have the willpower to execute, you know, and uh class Lux book, easy interval training, which, you know, has been kind of like a, a revelation just in terms of seeing this person independently, you know, thinking a lot of parallel thoughts and a person who has had a totally different experience, you know, performing athletically, right? Um, you know, somebody who ran 338 and a 1500 and 2830 for the 10,000 meters, you know, talking about these same kinds of things is just like, it's a super crazy light bulb moment. Um, and you know, one of the things he says is he doesn't think that athletes need to learn willpower. He doesn't think that athletes need to learn through suffering. And he says that, you know, if you're want to do it, you'll just go out and do it because you want to. And I would go further and say that, you know, when you break athletes down mentally, where they learn like that, I worked really hard in this rep and I've murdered myself 800 after 800, I murdered myself. And then the coach does not acknowledge what you're doing. And the thing is, it's not that you need the coach to acknowledge you inherently. It's that when the coach has structured a concept of cueing where it's like, you will know if you're doing this right because I acknowledge you, then you need that acknowledgement, not because you're fragile or need attention or any of these negative things we have about people who look for affirmation, but because literally it's like, okay, you're not acknowledging me, so that means that I'm not doing this hard enough. So I need to keep trying to find a way to see if can I push myself more into failure. And the answer is you can't, right? Like there's a finite point to that. And so you're never going to get that acknowledgement. 
So teaching athlete willpower cues is wrong, it's limiting, it's ineffectual, and it's probably then somewhat harmful to an individual's sense of self. And I think I've talked about on other episodes in the podcast, and it's worth bringing up again in this context, that I think that coaches inadvertently traumatize us as athletes, and they create this like trauma-bonded relationship with athletics where we go back to and we can't get out of doing this in this horrible way because... Like, that's all we really know. Um, It's not that we think that's all we deserve. It's just like we don't, that's it. That is what it is. And like, if we want, you know, in the same way that if somebody wants friendship or companionship, that they think, well, this is what it is. Like, if we don't have an alternative, then we can't turn in a different direction. The road only goes in one one lane, one, one way. And... So we have to think then about what cueing methods we're adopting, fostering, both accidentally and intentionally. If the justification is this encourages willpower and teaches them to be tough, then we have to ask, is willpower a limiter, either a psychological obstacle or physiological? I talked to Caleb McVeigh um, about this when we were running, working out the other day. And he was talking about, you know, playing football when he was younger and, you know, like, doing bear crawls, you know, across the length of the football field or whatever, repeatedly, and then, you know, losing and then coaching coaches screaming and yelling because um, it's really important for coaches of, you know, traditional, um, you know, male team sports to scream and yell. That's like a very important experience. And they're really entitled to do that. And, uh, you know, instead of recognizing that that's just like incredibly sophomoric and petty, like a toddler, upset, you know, because their their toys aren't good enough or something like that. Um, but, you know, and Caleb made the point, which is right on the money, that well, we can't do well because we're totally trashed from doing these bear crawls that you thought were developing mental toughness, but you're basically limiting people's ability to apply. You're basically, if the irony is that if you, for people who believe willpower is the most important, you're basically eliminating the ability to apply that. Because the body is now going to be so messed up that you can't get anything out of willpower because you have reduced your ceiling of failure all the way down basically to the floor. You know, you got to reduce the stress. That's what needs to be happening. You know, there's no evidence that willpower will change. As far as I am concerned, there's no evidence that willpower is going to change physiological markers like you can't willpower your, and that's what's cool about lactate testing, as you realize very obviously that willpower has nothing to do with your level of fitness and level of capacity, because it doesn't matter how motivated you are. Um, and to be honest with you, you know, it's an extension of these things that I learned when I first started doing step tests, um, you know, and experimenting with a, having a lactate meter myself and, you know, trying to figure out what's going on with this. I would like do the step test like on the bike and I would be, Hey, okay, I'm going to be, try to be really relaxed and try to be really locked in and focused and all of these, you know, cool exercise achievement terms and the idea that that's going to, and I, I wasn't even think, I didn't sit down and say consciously I was going to do that. But retrospectively I look back and I realized that's what I was doing. And now I'm just like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> that is not going to change you know, how my, because your body is basically an, it's a chemical reaction, right? And the chemical reaction is driven by energy. And if you have more energy, you're going to do better. So it's about 
reducing the stress, right? So now when I do lactate testing, I just don't care. I just go along. I'm confident. I'm worry-free. I'm not thinking about it because I know that it's just going to happen the way it happens. And that's fine. And the real issue is in general, as long as I'm training correctly, it will get continue to get better over time. So like a runner is going to lose interest, for example. They're going to lose willpower. A cyclist, right, an endurance athlete is going to lose interest because, say, it's too hot. And, um, you know, right, they don't really see what there is to do about that, right? So certainly torturing them isn't going to help. You know, but you want to re- reduce the stress. I carried a chest of ice um, into the woods about a mile and a quarter during one cross-country meet that I coached. It was super hot and the meet was still happening. And I think um, there's another thing. If I was coaching cross-country now, I would be more inclined to be like, it's hot, let's just cancel the meet. Like, let's just not run this meet today. There's just no point. But, you know, and I told them that basically not to run, you know, that hard until like the last half mile because I knew that we were pretty much going to, you know, the meet was not going to be competitive. But I still brought all this ice out there because we also had a lot of other guys on the team who were not at that top fitness level and they, you know, wanted to go out and do their thing and, and run hard. And so I was handing out ice and I ended up just, you know, handing out cups of ice to anybody as they as they went by, um, not just our athletes, of course, which, although, you know, to be fair, I was originally like, oh yeah, well, if we have this ice, then we'll get whatever. <laughs> but then it's like, once you're out there, it's like, oh, that's so selfish, right? Everybody doesn't, nobody should be feeling crappy like this. But if people feel better, though, the point is the willpower goes up, right? So there's an example of people, a lot of people would be like, you're coddling the athletes. Really? The goal here is to perform, right? And the goal here is to get better, right? Not to like torture the mind in some weird asceticized concept of the subjugation of the conscious self's you know, weakness to take control of the body and achieve some sort of weird athletic enlightenment or nirvana. But you reduce the stress, willpower goes up, you know. Um, Maybe the physiological markers aren't changing, per se, in that context. But, you know, these in terms of like your lactate threshold, maybe, maybe it is. But if that's the case, then you reduce the stress, you know, because stress is, is, is a real mechanism of experience. And if we reduce this, then... We're going to improve the kind of performance that we see. So in this approach here, really, we should be identifying all of the different kinds of cues and then map, maybe literally do this, map out the out impact, the you know, learning outcome, if you will, for the athletes of applying these cues. What are they learning about how to engage with sport? Are they learning to murder themselves? Um, what or what? Right? Are they learning to be lazy? Probably not. Um, if they are, then use some different cues. Right? Uh, I go back to my brain always goes back to this weird thing I saw at an outdoor track meet. Um, I was on the infield with the, some of the runners that are going to do the mile, and um, there was a coach from another team, high school coach from another team, who was coaching a. Uh, I, think, I assume was a freshman girl because she ran in the freshman girls' mile. Um, but was coaching this freshman girl to run six minutes in the mile at the at that invitational, and uh, the way that this coaching was done is he told the athlete that not he told the athlete ninety 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 ninety, and that was the cue. And then of course the athlete went out there and did not run six minutes in the mile, 
And then there was some weird, like, mutual, like, the coach was sort of, like, clearly disappointed because in their mind, the athlete should have been able to take this cue. And then the athlete is obviously disappointed because in their mind, they were going to do this thing. And then they didn't. And, you know, my athletes saw that. And I had to ask them to shut up because they were laughing, um, you know, as people do sometimes when we're in high school we're not as sensitive to other people's experience we're not as aware of the extent to which other people can hear um what we're doing or saying but like that's not useful right that's a cue right that's the brain and the will um now we we get focused on setting performance goals i want to be x fast then we say these are the goals and then we like use our will to achieve those. But our goal should actually be to learn how to get the most out of ourselves because knowing and feeling we got we got the most out of ourselves is ultimately what's the most rewarding. And people who do these sports beyond whatever your sort of peak performance is, I think understand this. And I also say think there's a lot of people who are there's this demographic of people who are really good at this stuff but aren't good enough to get paid and they like don't basically pursue it and it's something that it was really a space where they had a lot of confidence and competence confidence enjoyment you know sense of meaning in their life and then they don't do it anymore because it's like well I can't achieve these goals I can't get better I can't be the best but if we have this different set of cues then we start to recognize that feeling that we got the most out of ourselves is rewarding that you can run a fast time and feel awful and you can maybe run a little slower time and feel great. And then that that's when you are more charged up, I think, ultimately. And so in the long run, right, when you have a different sense, sense of cueing, you literally improve your long-term engagement with this stuff. And this is where you also solve the willpower issue. The illusion of a lack of willpower is just the result of bad cueing, forcing athletes to do what they're basically incapable of doing. And I think what we need to do is view training in the same way we understand learning. We want to, as athletes, learn how to recognize our fitness level. And this could include answers to questions of how many to- how fast can we go uh, for given durations? How many times can we make X efforts? How many times to a sprint, right? How many times can we sprint, right? Um, how to time a sprint, right? Like when do I pull that trigger to make my maximum effort? How to be? How to read other athletes? How to be competitively successful? How to be competitively successful against others or our targets, but still feel positively stimulated? Even failing a target should be fun, right? So when I say competitively successful but feeling positively stimulated, I, it might sound kind of like what? Well, what does that even mean? Well, what I'm saying is that we should be able to go against targets of performance or against other athletes in competition. And then if we fail, we should still feel good about our experience because it should still be fun and rewarding because we got to get into that level of immersion. And we should be enthused um, about having been able to experience that challenge. And this might sound like, you know, Kool-Aid drinking for people who don't make the podium. But I think it's very important to recognize that these games of sport are fun even when everything doesn't fulfill our wildest dreams. And by the way, like having this attitude doesn't take away from your ability to get any better than you'd get otherwise. I think you're likely to get to a higher level of ability like this. 
But if you're going to be miserable all the but that's that idea of this dichotomy, right? Of like, you know, either you can be miserable all the time because that's the path to excellence. Or if we're having fun, then it's basically because we suck. And I think uh, the cross country team I coached, I think we had the most fun of any team in the state, you know, because we were experiencing immersion, we were gaining mastery. And, you know, we were generally training in a manner that was more reasonable and far more under control. And all of these things, right, that I've just listed here, described here, are basically internal understandings. And like all understandings, they must come from information. So when we train as athletes and are coached towards internal cues and provided they're the right ones, um, then we can do the best that we're capable of in our racing, which is ultimately from, if you're looking at this from the perspective of race performance, from the perspective of race performance, isn't that the goal? It's to be able to do the best possible racing. I try to teach my runners to train by feel. And I try to compare those feelings to the zones model because like, we never actually use the zones to say this is the heart rate or this is the power. I just use the zones as a social concept of like, can we create a language around cueing? And I actually think rather than be limited by the value of the zones, I think I got the most out of the zones doing it this way. Um, I also didn't emphasize the zones in the way that like the zones want to be distributed. I think that's important to point out that uh, we did not focus on the VO2 max. I use the zones to teach people to not train at those intensities. So whereas most people use the zones, say, this is great. Now I can train at VO2 max. I was using the zones to be like, yeah, so there's this intensity here. Let's not do that, right? Let's learn how to recognize when we're getting to that. And then we need to back off or we need to stop. I feel confident I was the only coach in New England doing this stuff in this particular way. And, you know, hence the pretty radical results too, I suppose. But I was usually vague or approximate on paces. I suggested them in certain instances, but it was based on, you know, what I thought the athletes would be experiencing internally. And then, you know, as we would, you know, change it as we went along and see how it went. And I, you know, talk about how does it feel? You know, and sometimes, you know, part of the learning experience is the athletes would be working too hard and I would be confident that I knew that that was the case and they wouldn't want to listen to me. I said, okay, we're going to learn the hard way, right? So we're going to learn through failure in this instance. And so I would have let them go and then, you know, the next day they would feel like crap and they would be frustrated. And I would say, well, you know, I, I gave you this recommendation. Why didn't you do it? Right. And then we would have a conversation from that point, right? And then they're, then, you know, okay, wow, no, right? Because they can see the outcome of their choices. Then they sort of realize the limitations or the negatives of making those choices. And I, I don't feel I was highly successful, as successful in teaching this as I should be due to the fact that uh, most of them immediately defaulted back to the sort of normative, like high speed, you know, um, training of their new group environment when they ran and went to run in college or whatever. Um, and I think a lot of them had pretty mixed results, but I, you know, at the same time, right. You know, I don't know to what extent is it really possible, right. You're in a college situation and then it's not just the coach in this environment, which you automatically assume must be superior because it's not high school anymore. Um, you know, and then all the other college people are doing this stuff, right. It, you know, it it's probably makes sense at the end of the day that, you know, what I tried to teach ultimately just sort of got flooded out by all of this 
the stuff. And that's what I mean when I say, you know, shouting into the dark that, you know, you're, you're speaking and it's, you know, reverberating, but it's just not sticking. It's not at the end of the day, is it really heard? Um, if it isn't something that a practice that's maintained and, you know, during track, you know, another example of this sort of duality of, um, perspective or the way in which our, you know, our perspective was not the mainstream or the norm. The head coach really wanted them to do traditional intervals. And I didn't like this. And I, you know, paid very little attention to those workouts when we were required to do them. But that was a total external cue system. And, you know, it just doesn't, it, it didn't work. And I really wanted to keep the athletes away from that. And so even though we were having this success that we were having in cross country, there was still this belief that, well, this is track and this is different. And now we need to do this stuff the right way. And I wonder what the level of performance and experience would have been if we'd been able to cut out those traditional intervals during the outdoor track season. I wanted a system of teaching, I think. I think the approach was more pedagogical than most coaches would take. Um, and I believed at the time and the stuff that I'm looking at with lactate now is validating this, um, you know, tangibly that it's possible to know how it felt to train the right way. And it's not this thing of, well, you just have to go, go for it, go all out. Uh, you can't harden your mind to do things. Um, you know, metaphors and analogies and allegories, you know, they're fun, I guess. But, you know, just because somebody says iron sharpens iron or whatever other nonsense doesn't mean that it applies, okay? Like, first of all, um, you don't actually sharpen iron with iron. So you're literally saying in and of itself, a statement like that is nonsensical. Even if that were true, which is not, but even if that were true, that's not really like how the body works anyway. <laughs> like there, there isn't evidence that says that that's how, how, how you do things, right? This idea of just putting something against something that's challenge, you know, putting to putting the will of the athlete against the challenging thing will sharpen the athlete. You know, that's just not true. Um, and you know, that approach is very non-pedagogical, right? And it's very controlling, um, again, it removes the mind of the athlete. And if you cue your athletes, right, and if you learn to cue yourself um, externally, then they're not going to be racing well, they're not going to be ready to race, and they're not going to get as much out of their training. Um, and if you hold yourself as an athlete to these external constructs, even when you're outside of the environment of having coached, it's, it's not going to be effective. And according to corners or maybe even not just corners, but maybe even the main squares of Instagram culture and YouTube and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, discipline and motivation, you know, are different. People confuse motivation with excitement. And the athlete who wins the race is going to be assessed as disciplined, but also as every other trait that the coach finds it rewarding to diagnose as present in their athletes because it validates their view of, you know, how people should work. But I would say that motivation and discipline are not different. You know, people say it's better to be disciplined than motivated. 
No, it's just better to like practice well than to practice poorly and learning what good practice is and is what we want to be doing. So the solution to this is I think that you want to learn how to recognize cues for aerobic training. That would be ultimately what these cues need to work us towards. And, you know, like Lydiard's saying, 70% to 100% of the maximum aerobic steady state, you know, and they're running 100 miles a week in that state. That's not like this thing where they're taking out a calculator, right? And figuring that out. That's a subjective feeling. They could recognize that based on how they felt when they were exerting themselves. You know, now we would call that lactate threshold. And, or, you know, maybe you would call that lact, uh, LT1. And there is no such thing as a second lactate threshold. And we've got episodes that have discussed that. So I'm not going to get into that again here. But Lydiard does offer some internal cues, right? Distance should stop you, not the speed. Um, you know, there's an emphasis on being comfortable. Coaches usually hate athletes who are comfortable. And after the strategic planning value of the coach, the second most valuable thing of the head coach is believed to be the coach's ability to get athletes to suffer enough to improve, direction of the athlete's will. That's the zone that's the hardest because in a muscular internal cue, we don't recognize anymore that we're at beneficial intensity until we're over LT1 because you're not feeling those muscular cues at that level. So if you're looking for that level of muscular exertion, like you only experience that once you're well over your aerobic capacity and the coach slave drives people into that state. And I think frequency of respiration is a better indicator, maybe the key indicator for this, because I, I don't think heart rate is really that great, to be honest, even at whether it's at high intensity, moderate intensity, or low intensity. And we're going to do an episode where we just explain why. But at threshold, right, this is the point that you just start to become aware of your breathing. You might see this referenced as being the first respiratory threshold. Um, most people don't notice it because they aren't cued to notice it. Being cued off of intensity teaches us something else, right? Because we're learning to look for a much faster pace. Therefore, we can't improve because we're not training at the intensity that leads to improvement. And that's why people are just sort of stag stagnate. And that's why if you show rapid improvement, you know, I think people want to know like, well, what external factor, you must have not been in shape, right? You're just sort of getting back in shape and then you'll be like the rest of us, right? And you'll get back to that plateau. And I don't think that that's the case. You know, I mean, I feel that when I'm in the aerobic zone, it's like I'm sort of smirking to myself because I can feel that coiled power inside me as a runner or cycling or swimmer or whatever I'm doing. And I feel that I'm performing competently, but there's also a sense of like, nobody can tell how easy this is for me. And I know that I can spring forward at any time into like a genuine effort and put the hammer down whenever I want. It doesn't mean that that's going to be a mind altering acceleration, but having that sense of differential, right? There's that feeling of holding back. It's also a feeling of just sort of hovering. And when you're at the threshold, it's the point at which you just start to notice your breathing. It's very subtle. I'm not noticing every single breath, but every few breaths, it feels like there's something a little bit more specific or targeted or intentional about the breath that I'm taking. And I struggle with, um, I struggle with velocity cues because I feel that I want a certain rate of movement, a certain level of stride um, with running. And that's how I associate that. And then it makes me feel like I'm engaged or what I'm doing is productive. But those velocity cues, you know, have really messed with your head and um, they are not reflective of what your effort is. 
And the coach should have insight into what the actual targeted physiological system is. And then, you know, you might identify that lactate threshold with the coach and do the training sessions below that intensity. And then you talk about it, how it felt over time. You learn to identify with those feelings. You learn to associate with those so that you can know this is right. This is how I should be training. And over time, within those aerobic feelings, you're able to increase velocity. And, of course, following cues correctly means that you're getting the right stimulus, the right benefit, the right experience, and improvement will follow. Good legs for racing will follow. You know, I, I can't diagnose or, or coach ultimately by lecture here about how it should feel for you, but there is a feeling, there's a set of internal cues, and that's what I've tried to describe above. I've described above that those are my internal cues that I've you know, come to recognize that I need to be focusing on. And that I need to also focus on knowing my external cues and then setting those aside when they're, and, and even the internal cues that obfuscate this, right? Because this need to feel like your legs are hurting, right? That's an internal cue, but learning to set those aside. So the demand of training is something we have to build correctly. Frequency plus volume plus intensity right? We have to build correctly. And intensity ultimately is going to determine whether or not our training is successful. And the way we're going to get there is not by designing periodized models. It's not by being obsequiously obedient to coaches. It's by learning the correct system of cueing. Because most models of training identify intensity work basically by what I would describe more as by happenstance than by accuracy. So for a lot of us, this simply won't work the way that we hope. We're still applying the stress, so there's going to be some sort of shifts and changes happening with the body, um, but it's just not really going to be working the way we want. And it's unfortunate to think that the scale of improvement most of us ever experience is basically just like tying our shoes. Nothing is complicated once we understand what we're doing. We don't look to make something simple. We make it simple by mastering it. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've enjoyed this episode and you know other people who you think would enjoy the ideas here, feel free to recommend the pod to other people you know. We have upcoming episodes related to heart rate training, terminal velocity and training development, why zones are perhaps a limiting factor to training, how rest, the rest cure, should actually function, um, as, and an episode on the problems of trying to train to create an optimal lactate profile. So if any of this catches your interest, stay tuned. You can check us out on Instagram as well, at Black Cats Run, and we'll catch you next time.